Chapter one, take two, two. Nice. Nice. As usual, Okio Ma laughed. How's your book coming along, by the way? I'm plowing on. Is it a novel about expatriates? Well, no, not quite. But it's a novel, isn't it? Richard sipped his beer and wondered what Okiyama would think if he knew the truth, that even he did not know whether it was a novel or not because the pages he had written did not make any coherent whole. I'm very interested in Ibo Uku art, and I want to make that a central part of the book, he said. How so? I've been utterly fascinated by the bronzes since I first read about them. The details are stunning. It's quite incredible that these people had perfected the complicated art of lost wax casting during the time of the Viking raids. There is such marvelous complexity in the bronzes, just marvelous. You sound surprised, Okiyama said. What? You sound surprised, as if you never imagined these people capable of such things. Richard stared at Okiyama. There was a new and quiet disdain in the way Okiyama stared back. A slight furrow to his eyebrows before he said, Enough, Odenibo and Prof. I have a poem calling to you all. The sound of the rain slapping against the window woke him up the next morning. Kainene lay beside him, her eyes half open in that eerie way that meant she was deeply asleep. He looked at her dark chocolate skin, which shone with oil, and lowered his head to her face. He didn't kiss her, didn't let his face touch hers, but placed it close enough so that he could feel the moistness of her breath and smell its faint, curdled scent. He stretched and went to the window. It rained in slants here in Port Harcourt so that the water hit the windows and walls rather than the roof. Perhaps it was because the ocean was so close, because the air was so heavy with water that it let it fall too soon. For a moment the rain became intense and the sound against the window grew loud, like pebbles being flung against the glass. He stretched again. The rain had stopped and the window panes were cloudy. Behind him, Kainene stood and mumbled something. Kainene, he said. Her eyes were still half open, her breathing still regular. I'm going for a walk, he said, although he wasn't sure she didn't hear him. Outside, Ikejidi was plucking oranges. His uniform bunged up at the back as he nudged fruit down with a stick. Good morning, sir, he said. Kedu, Richard asked. He felt comfortable practicing his Ibo with Kainene's stewards because they were always so expressionless that it did not matter whether or not he got the tones right. I am well, sir. Jiseike. Yes, sir. Richard went to the bottom of the orchard, where he could see through the thicket of trees the white foam of the sea's waves. He sat on the ground. He wished that Major Madu had not invited them to dinner. He was not at all interested in meeting the man's wife. He got up and stretched and went around to the front yard and looked at the violent bougainvillea that crept up the walls. He walked for a while down the muddy stretch of deserted road that led to the house before he turned back. Kainene was in bed reading the newspaper. He climbed in beside her and she reached out and touched his hair her fingers gently caressing his scalp. Are you all right? You've been tense since yesterday. Richard told her about Okioma, and because she did not respond right away, he added, I remember the first time I read about Ibo Uku art, in an article where an Oxford don described it as having a strange Rococo, almost Fabergé-like virtuosity. I never forgot that. Rococo, almost Fabergé-like virtuosity. I fell in love even with that expression. She folded the newspaper and placed it on the bedside cabinet. Why does it matter to you so much what Okiyama thinks? I do love the art. It was horrible of him to accuse me of disrespect. And it's wrong of you to think that love leaves room for nothing else. 
it's possible to love something and still condescend to it. Thank you. Thank you. Kia ora, everyone. Welcome to Chapter 1, Take 2, the podcast where we read the book, watch the film, and discuss the adaptation. My name is Maddie. I'm Brianna. And this week we have the honour of covering Half of a Yellow Sun. Happy Independence Day. Happy Independence Thank you. I just don't get what you see in these English boys. <laughs> I applied for a job as a lecturer in the Department of Sociology and I got it. A special woman is arriving this weekend. Very special. Yes, sir. My name is not Sam. Yes, sir. My sister's revolutionary lover and his band of drinkers. He did not tell us you were logically beautiful. I'll take that as a compliment. Let's get married. By Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. I'm really happy that you pronounce things very well. Well, I hope that I do, but I'm sure that my intonations aren't correct. Yes. Um, thank you for doing that reading. Um, if you haven't read this book, I just want to say right off the bat that you absolutely should. And for me, historical fiction is something that really appeals to me, but it also irritates me that I hadn't heard about this war prior to reading this novel. Yeah, I mean, I had heard of Biafra, uh, probably in passing, um, as sort of a side note of what was going on or giving context to other historical events, but I had never studied this. Mm. I think it's um, a really complicated story in the amount of elements that uh, Chimamanda has included. Um, Would you like to give our audience a summary before we dive in because there's a lot to cover. Yeah, I'll give a summary and then I'm going to give some historical context. Thank you. Um, Because it's hard to unpack all of the greatness of the story and the plot and the characters that Chimamanda has created without understanding the historical context. Yeah, and she um, about a year ago posted a YouTube video asking um, a few reader questions, talking a bit more about the context and her process of writing the novel. So um, if you haven't seen that, I would recommend giving it a watch as well because it's great to hear from, in her own words, um, her process of writing this. Absolutely. We should link it in the description. Yeah. So the novel takes place in Nigeria prior to and during the Nigerian Civil War from 1967 to 1970. The effect of the war is shown through the relationships of five people's lives, including the twin daughters of an influential businessman, a professor, a a British expat, and a Nigerian houseboy. After Piafra's declaration of secession, the lives of the main characters drastically change and are torn apart by the brutality of the Civil War and decisions in their personal lives. The book jumps between events that took place during the early and late 1960s when the war took place and extends until the end of the war. In the early 1960s, the main characters are introduced. Ugu, a 13-year-old village boy who moves in with Odenibo to work at his house. Odenibo frequently entertains intellectuals to discuss the political turmoil in Nigeria. Life changes for Ugu when Odenibo's girlfriend, Alana, moves in with them. Ugu forms a strong bond with both of them and is a very loyal houseboy. Alana has a twin sister, Kainane, a woman with a dry sense of humor, tired by the pompous company she runs for her father. Her lover, Richard, is an English writer who goes to Nigeria to explore Igbo uku art. Jumping four years ahead, trouble is brewing between the Hausa and the Igbo people, and hundreds of people die in massacres, including Alana's beloved auntie and uncle. A new republic called Biafra is created by the Igbo. 
As a result of the conflict, Olana, Adenabo, and their infant daughter, whom they only refer to as Baby, and Ugu are forced to flee Nsukka, where they live, which is the university town and the major intellectual hub of the new nation. They finally end up in the refugee town of Umuahia, where they suffer and struggle due to food shortages, the constant air raids, and the environment of paranoia. There are also allusions to a conflict between Olana and Kainene, Richard and Kainene, and between Olana and Adenabo. When the novel jumps back to the early 1960s, we learn that Odenibo has slept with the village girl Amala, who then has his baby. Olana is furious at his betrayal and sleeps with Richard in a moment of liberation. She goes back to Odenibo, and when they later learn that Amala refused to keep her newborn daughter, Olana decides that they would keep her. Uh, during the war, Olana, Odenibo, Baby, and Ugu live with Kainene and Richard, where Kainene was running a refugee camp. Their situation is hopeless as they have food have no food nor medicine. Kanene decides to trade across the enemy lines, but does not return, even after the end of the war a few weeks later. The book ends ambiguously, with the reader not knowing if Kainene lives. It's a very good summary. Um, it is a very good summary. The only thing that's kind of left out is that for a wee while, um, Kainene and Olana are estranged because of Olana's betrayal. Yeah, for and quite that's a few years. quite a significant plot point. It is. I think the book does a really interesting um, balance of having um, romantic relationships and interpersonal relationships balanced with the brutality and the extremity of the war that's going on at the same time. Mm. And something that I really took away was how life goes on, it just looks different, even in wartime, um, because people still have to do their daily things. They still have to feed themselves and sort clothes. And obviously when you're no longer able to do that because of the struggles of war. That's when people die. But just like up until that point, people just go through the motions. Absolutely. There are also really great parallels drawn between the two major betrayals that take care of, take place in the book, yeah. which is um, Odenibo sleeping with Amala and then Kainene or uh, Olana sleeping with Richard. Those are the two major betrayals. And then the two major events of the war war preceding the actual war which is the coup and then um the pogrom which the word pogrom isn't used in the book but a pogrom is basically um the systematic killing and murdering of a specific race to create ethnic cleansing which is what happens to the Igbo. and that's different from genocide um i think a pogrom is a specific event okay um you said you wanted to give some historical events context so i've just taken these from um a lit chart summary uh site um just to give us some context because it's really useful so part of the novel's political aspect involves tracing the roots of the biafran war and the Igbo massacres back to colonialism the british were trying to rule nigeria from afar so they purposely caused conflicts between the ethnic groups there so that those groups would not unite against their oppressor after Nigeria gained independence from Britain, though, only these tensions were left. So the beginning of the book takes place, and the beginning of the film as well, takes place um, during Nigerian independence with the Queen kind of visiting to say, yay, you're independent. Yeah, no longer under British rule. Um, and then there's a coup. Um, the coup actually involved mostly northern soldiers, but it was immediately portrayed as an Igbo coup because many of its plotters were Igbo. This anti-Ebo sentiment was exacerbated by Britain, as in the BBC, who wanted to keep tensions high to maintain their influence in Nigeria. So we hear um, radio segments from the BBC, like calling it the Ebo coup, and that exacerbates the tensions and sort of 
I don't want to say unintentionally, but leads to uh, the pogrom. Which starts manipulation. I don't think the BBC was like, yeah, let's start a pogrom and ethnic cleansing. But they definitely wanted to encourage that sentiment because it helped their power. The immediate facts of the massacres make them seem like the products of natural religious and ethnic tensions. But the reality is that these tensions were almost non-existent before England mashed together the disparate societies that became Nigeria. So Nigeria didn't exist until England started colonizing that area. (laughs) So they were separate states and countries before. Well, it wasn't even that. It was like the tribes worked together and like by each other, but they weren't like Mm -hmm. countries the way that we perceive of them as today. Sure. Um, I was walking around the house before just thinking about how white people are the worst. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Nigeria gained its independence years before, but at its very foundations, it was always destined for inner strife. Mm. The Nigerian government doesn't exactly welcome the Biafrans back with open arms. So this is at the end of the war. Nigeria did indeed liquidate all Biafran bank accounts, no matter how wealthy the person was before. And they gave every Biafran 20 Nigerian pounds with which to start their lives over. Um, another thing that I didn't caught, I didn't take a screenshot of and talk about, but um, one of the significant aspects that talked about is that a lot of other countries, America, uh, Canada, Great Britain, um, don't recognize Biafra as a country. Mm. Um, if you know anything about um, the American Civil, like the not the American Civil War, the American Revolutionary War, there is a big moment in the war when America is recognized as a country because once it's recognized as a country basically that means that you can trade with other countries and they'll recognize the validity of your nation mm-hmm. um, and, and the financial validity of your nation in order to complete those trades and so they're more likely to take sides yeah. um, but, but Biafra didn't get anyone to take sides with it really. France sort of recognized it but didn't provide a lot of relief and Russia and um, Great Britain didn't recognize it because as kind of points out in both the film and the book the oil is in the is in the geographic location of Biafra mm-hmm. and so they don't they've they've been trying to control Ni- Nigeria this whole time to access the oil and Biafra secedes and then they no longer have a stronghold in Nigeria yeah. um, and Biafrans had like like an anti-colonial sentiment because colonialism wasn't really great for Nigeria. Um, Is it great for any place? No. Okay. (laughs) Um, It seems a bit silly, but I'll I'll cover my um, facts, like my ratings and stuff. I I say it's silly because this um, is historical fiction, but it is uh, obviously based on real uh, life events, a real war. So for me, the ratings don't really matter because the book uh is important to read regardless but yeah i'll go through it anyway yeah i know like i i feel like i know this is a book to film adaptation i this we do but i feel like i want to talk so little about the film (laughs) (laughs) uh yeah so the film uh was released in 2013 the novel was originally published in 2006 um it got 6.1 on imdb and 51 percent on rotten tomatoes so not very popular um it was directed by Biyi uh, Bendeli who is Nigerian um but moved to London um I think when he was in his 30s or 40s um the budget was kind of interesting to look at um in Nigerian currency I believe it's 1 billion 270 million dollars Nigerian dollars um which is the equivalent to 3 million American dollars 
Um, and on IMDb, it said that it grossed box office 306,000, but that didn't seem right. And then on Wikipedia, it said the budget for the film was 8 to 10 million, and at box office, just over 2 million. So either way, financially, it was not successful. I'm not that surprised by that. Um, what do you think of that? Uh, yeah, checks out. <laughs> I'm just going to, like, I'm going to... This should never have been turned into a film. Like a fictional film? It just shouldn't have been turned into a film. It's too big. Right, what if they did, like, a um, a documentary, like, TV series? It should have been a miniseries. Yeah. And it shouldn't have been... And it, it cannot... It cannot be done by BBC. No. That would be so not. inappropriate, but yeah. I would love to see a Netflix series of this. So that it's okay for Netflix to do it even though they're American and not um, Nigerian or Biafran? Biafran. I don't... I think it's complicated. Because um, America still didn't help. No, of course not. Um, the reason I think that it would be great for Netflix to pick it up is because... Ideally, we want this to gain um, international success, sure. and okay. so we need a high market. There's a reason this book was published in um, English instead of Ebo. Like oh. that was a distinct decision, I think. Sure, absolutely. Um, I'll just go through the cast. It was very star-studded. Um, Alana is sorry, and all of the acting is good. It's really good. Yeah, it's um, just the film is not yeah. great. Tadanwi? Newton? Uh, no, it's Tandiwe. Tandiwe. Yeah, Tandiwe. Yeah. Uh, Anika Nomi Rose as Kainene, um, who I first saw in Dreamgirls. Yeah. With and also well known for the voice of Tiana. I've never put her face to that character, but of course they she is. They look similar. But she also has an amazing singing voice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Ugu is played by John uh, Boyega. Boyega, yeah. Um, who you will have seen in the most recent trilogy of Star Wars. Yep. As Finn. As Finn, yep. Uh, oh, Denny Bo. Thank you. Why don't you just do the names? Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, the reason I'm pausing is not because I don't feel confident to pronounce the names. I listen to them a lot. It's because I can't read Maddie's handwriting. <laughs> and Maddie also can't read Maddie's handwriting because no. I looked up, I was having Maddie read me the um, spellings of the words so I could look up the pronunciations before we started recording and Maddie misspelled some of them because they couldn't read their own handwriting. Here you go. Um, sorry. Um, so... Odenibo is played by Chiwetel Ejiofor. Who is massive. He was in 12 Years a Slave, as well as something else I wrote on here. Oh, he's in the most recent uh, 2021 film, um, Lockdown with Anne Hathaway. It's his most recent film. Oh, yeah. We should check that out. And then Joseph Moll is Richard. Yeah. Who is the white guy. And you didn't write down baby's name. I couldn't uh, find her. Oh, well, she was stunning. I mean, she's mostly in the background, but she's a beautiful little girl. Yeah, and she also cried and it made me Sad. really upset um <sighs> yep okay so that's, that's what i've got so let's, let's dive in yeah let's really dive in here uh how would you rate the film as an adaptation of the book three out of ten yeah 
like it had some of the main characters, but to me, it, it there's too like you said, there's too much to cover, um, and I don't really know how I feel about it being. It's not that it, it's not that it can't be directed by a man, but I just feel like, um, I feel like we we basically don't get any of uh, Ugwu's story, and so we see none of the brutality of the soldiers even fighting for the right side is it the right side i i think we should you know get into that i'm gonna give it a one a one yeah i'm giving a i would give it a zero but like to be fair um a lot of um the major plot points are there they only cut characters and scenes to shorten the plot and a lot of the dialogue is taken directly from the book so i'm giving it a one but is the same story told no the film is the relationship points juxtaposed against documentary footage of the war but like you miss all of the character experiencing the war you miss all of the juxtapositions the fall from grace the class the the internal struggle the you know um just so much mm. um what did you think of using the real life footage the historical footage uh you know what i i didn't have a problem with it i just think that um what it meant is it, it, I, f- I feel like it unfortunately created a detachment because we don't recognize any of the people on the footage so we don't feel emotionally connected to them it's it's the same thing as, um, you know, Chimamanda not so subtly calling out Americans for seeing pic- pictures of African children, Nigerian children, dying from um, from uh, Kawashio Corps and then going back to their lives, mm. uh, which she does in the book, you know. And I think that's what we get with the documentary footage where as by telling the story of the war, especially through Olana... Um, and like the the the, ba- the power that she gains through the story, and the loss of class that she has throughout the story, and then Ugu's power shift from being an uneducated houseboy to the author at the end, um, and all the experiences he goes through in the war, um, starting with like his his like rampant objectification of women and like really horny sexuality all the way to him falling true truthfully in love with uh Eberecci and then ultimately raping someone um in a really sick foreshadowing of his sister's gang rape by soldiers like and then ultimately coming out the other side of it and becoming sort of the voice of the Biafran nation um via writing the book they were silent when we died the world was silent when we died. Like, we lose all of that because there's no time for it in the film. Yeah. I wanted this episode. I was listening to an episode of a podcast that I really love called Cult Popter. Um, and I really was like, oh, gosh, this is so funny. And I was like, I really want our episode to be funny. And then I was like, it's not going to happen because this is so dark. But it's different. This episode shouldn't be funny. No, it shouldn't be. And they cover different things from us, and I also don't think that um, they have the same tone of the episodes. Well, yeah, this is just—it's just sad. Yeah. Um. So then let's just talk about 
the book. Is that what you're going into next? Um, yeah, the book is incredible. Um, as I kind of spoke about earlier, um, the relationship dynamic between Kainene and Alana is like a reflection of the war. And um, the whole book has a lot of theme around identity. Richard doesn't know if he's a writer. Olana doesn't understand who she is because she is Igbo, but she was essentially raised in London because that's where she got her education. Yeah. Um, and she's attracted to Odenebo because of his political outspokenness, but doesn't 100% see eye to eye to him the whole time. And so she feels kind of confused and like a bit of a foreigner. And then we get Ugu, who is born into abject poverty um and then he suddenly swept up into this upper class lifestyle albeit as a houseboy but we see him as he goes back to his old life a few times feeling uncomfortable with the level of poverty that he used to live in mm. um and then as they move through the war and become like odedibo and um alana become more and more poor and they basically become the same level of poor that Ugu was when he starts the book um Uku is the one who becomes picky and he keeps saying this house is not a good house. It's yeah. not good enough for you guys. Yeah. Um, and he, he's the one who re- he, he laments his old life whereas everyone else is like, this is for the war. Um, and there's just so much of that that we don't get. We don't get any of the genius. We don't. One of the reasons I, re- I read that passage is because I think we lose... Richard and I cannot I can't I, as much as I love Ugu and he is one of my favorite characters in the book and I love his story I love everything that he represents um Richard's story is so important and I cannot speak highly enough of the genius of his narrative by Chimamanda like he is a subverted white savior mm-hmm. he is the lens that you know we we talked about in Hidden Figures how when white people make a race film they always have to give a white character for white audience members to see themselves through so they can be like I wouldn't have been part of the racism and so Chimamanda who's clearly aware of that trope writes a white savior into this character and then makes him fail and he goes through the whole thing where like he he believes that he's Biafra and he believes that he isn't part of it and then she continually shows why he's not really Biafran and why he can never truly identify mm. as Ebo because mm. he can leave during the war. When he's in the airport scene, he's not in danger. And even in that moment, it's not even that. It's that he doesn't feel sad for the people who are dying around him. He only feels, feels scared for Kainene and relieved that she's not there because he knows he wouldn't be able to protect her and extend his privilege around her. Um, Are you saying he's not sad for the people in the airport who get murdered in front of him? He says he's not. When he goes into the bathroom and starts crying. Like, he's he's definitely sad about it, and he feels disgusted by it, but not in the same way that he feels for, um, uh, for Kainene. Not in the same way that you and I felt such an outpouring of grief like we've been personally attacked when the Pulse nightclub shootings happened because that's our community and it was a hate crime against them right and like people can feel sad about it and disgusted by it but they don't understand what it's like they're still detached from it and yeah they, because they don't feel like they were ever in danger themselves yeah. yeah and then at the end of the book we see kind of that true cycle for Richard because um he says that racist comment to 
uh, Madhu, because he's, he struggled with his jealousy, he kind of comes through it during the war. And then at the end, when he ultimately loses Kainene, who represents Biafra and his Biafran identity, um, he is he loses his allyship for a moment. And he says, did you ever put your filthy black hands on Kainene to Madhu? Mm. Um and I, it's so disappointing that we lose that narrative. And I did want to go back to what you were saying, because I agree, this film was so watered down. Yeah. Like, none of the violence, the beheaded baby, yeah. um, the EKGD's um, beheading is uh, not in there. I don't and think we watched... Yeah, there's a... Uh, as is, as they managed to give a nipple slip... But cut all of the significant violence and rape scenes from it. Well, yeah, as is with any, like, you know, rape. Uh, happens every day. And it's especially prolific during war. And I I feel like a lot of the, yeah, the violence was watered down as well as the manipulation. Like, I think, um, you know, we, we still get that betrayal um, from Odidibo. 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 Um, when he sleeps with the woman his mother brings, and but I imagined it in the book so differently. Like the film, to me, was wrong. So the way I the way it's described to me, and the way that I saw it in the book, was that um, he's drunk, and he goes to bed, and he is asleep, and then she sneaks into his room, and because she knows he's drugged, he she like jumps on top of him. And, like, then he's kind of, I don't know, he just participates in it then. And then she sneaks out. Whereas in the film, he is on top of her on the floor. Hmm. Like, he's much more of an active participant than I imagined. I think that part of it is always a bit confusing because we never get we get a much more intimate exposure to it in the film than we do in the book because we only see in the book we only see um from ugu's perspective uh amala sneaking out of the room yeah so we have no idea what takes place in the bedroom yeah and we get a perspective from odenibo that he forces himself that she forces himself on her Mm. forces herself on him yeah um but from the analyses that I read of the book, it seems to be more like he gave in to lust. Mm. I... And I think it's supposed to talk about because she entered the room and that's a violation. Um, but there's a lot of, in the war, we see, you know, we see this idea, the ideal of Biafra mm. that's put up and the ideal of the Igbo sentiment and freedom and justice. But as we get deeper and deeper to the war, we realize how both sides have corrupt and both sides are committing massive injustices. And that's why when you said, like, the right side, it's like, it's complicated. And I think that's what Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie is proposing with this book, is that it was complicated, Mm. that there was propaganda from the Biafran side of the war, and that they did do terrible things. That doesn't mean that... Nigeria was right or that Britain was right or Russia was right for supporting the Nigerian settlements because they were doing it for oil Mm. but it's complicated and in order for Nigeria to move forward it seems like like from some of the articles that I read 
Um, they've never properly aired their grievances. No, like nobody talks about it. It's just a hush hush. Yeah, you know. And I, I said it to you while I was reading the book that I'm sure there was an um, Olana in the Nigerian side, and she would have had just as much reason to believe that Nigeria was fighting for the right cause because mm. um, war harms so many and benefits so few a lot of the time. I think something that also really annoyed me about um, Odenibo's character is that he never seems to take ownership for yes. what happens, and that really pisses me off because um, Olana feels liberated by sleeping with Richard because she knew that it would hurt Odenibo, but he just blames um, the drugs and being drunk and his mother for manipulating him, and he, for me... Like, I get that Olana loves him, but I wouldn't take him back because he doesn't really think that he did anything wrong. And he's too casual at the beginning about the horrible things that Mama first says to Olana when they first meet anyway. Yeah. Oh, Danny was an interesting character. I, he, he never really, um, justifies his existence, (laughs) um, in the sense that he's like, he's, so he's this radical and he's always talking about his lofty radical. ideals um, and his politics and whatever. Uh, but he, like he's very anti-colonialism, but he likes, he prefers things like classical music over high life music, which is um, West, a distinct West African music style uh, combining traditional African rhythms with Western instruments. Mm. Look that up. He just thinks too much of himself and it really pisses me off he does and it's really you can see that so clearly in the fact that um he has a houseboy yeah and i mean uh who he, he doesn't pay but no he's a slave yeah yeah and but he thinks he's doing uh ugu a favor because he's taken him from his village but he insults him he calls him an imbecile and an ignoramus ignoramus my apologies i just um, think it's so funny when he says that yeah and and there's the scene where um, he goes and helps Ugu's mother, which is, like, his idea of being, like, a kind master. Mm. Um, but, you know, you see the clear difference in the class because Ugu's mother has a mere infection that's very easy to cure if you have access to antibiotics. And, and I think and she that. dies, like, she does something later. very curable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, like, in that thing, he's like, I can just, I can deal with this. It's not a big deal. Yeah. But and for he... everyone in his village, it's like, she's going to die. Yeah. You know, it's a big deal. He's very short with everyone, especially if they don't just keep up with his pace. Like, I would just, yeah, I... <sighs> you can see, like, he he feel, like, he wants to pretend like him having houseboy isn't a big deal by insisting that Ugu call him Odenibo instead of Sir. Yeah, yeah. And I agree with you that I really missed um, the really specific and necessary lens that we get from hearing the story from Richard. And I really enjoyed Richard's insecurities. I really enjoyed the fact that he... Even even from the beginning, he doesn't really know how to interact with people. And he has a few different... He's in a relationship at the beginning with a white woman who doesn't see women of colour as a threat to their relationship. Yeah, because she views them as so far beneath her. Yeah, exactly. Oh, um, even, she's awful. Even though Kainene is um, equivalent to being one of the wealthiest people in the city, if not the country. Hmm. Um, her father is essentially a oil baron or a business baron, and she runs... Um, yeah, Port Harcourt. Um, 
yeah i the book is told really well like we we get the three you know each chapter it changes between being um, from richard's perspective alana's perspective of or uh ugu's perspective i really yeah i feel like the movie is mainly based around alana's perspective and like the experiences that she go through but like you said everything is very watered down like she sees um her uncle and aunt and cousins murdered and her pre- her, her, cu- her, her her cousin is pregnant Arise. yeah and she's murdered and raped and they cut the baby out yeah and it's fucking brutal and and for months or years afterwards she can't even walk because yeah. of the way the trauma has um, mentally and physically crippled her yeah and we don't, I mean, we, we get a brief thing of that, like the briefest of things where she kind of walks stumbly out of the bedroom, but I just feel like, I don't know. Is and it, it's taken completely out of context. We don't know why she's stumbling. Yeah. And I don't, I don't know why things like that are turned away from, like a lot of the time in these war films, um, there was a lot of explosion and a lot of blowing up and then a lot of sex and romance. And... And, like, I get it, like, you're st- still trying to make a Hollywood film, I guess, out of a historically fictional... Like, I think I think that it's fine not to show all of the brutality, but at least some more of it should have been implied. Like, I don't think it needs to be pornographic in its violence. No, I don't think it needs to be gore I thought porn. The, the, you know, the, the, the visual of the civilian wiping his knife after presumably killing... Yeah was good yeah but like that's kind of the extent also the airport scene i thought was good like it's very brutal yeah that is brutal and that's like the only part yeah. that's brutal I mean, but even that like you know the person that richard um ends up speaking with he then goes to his family and fuck this was so good and so interesting and the family oh yes the, that was so good yeah and the family's like cool so you were there when he when he died, what have you brought us? And Richard thought that he would be so welcomed that they they thought he thought that his he parents, was doing such a big yeah, thing. Yeah, and his parents he would thought be he was so excited. Be a white savior. Yeah, and his like you know the guy's parents would be so excited to hear from him and know like this was the last person he spoke to before he was murdered. And like they don't give a shit. Like regardless yeah. of him speaking to Richard, their son is still dead. And they're like, what have you brought us? It's like you know um, a contribution to our family during this hard time. And he's like nothing like i brought myself and he's got am I, am, yeah and i'm like am i not enough no and, and it's just like no bro like you're not and i just i thought that was great i i agree uh i also i really enjoy the fact that he it's not that richard can't write you know mm. he can't write this story because it's not his story to tell yeah um but we see that he can write when he starts writing the articles in the war um using his privilege to assist and which, help the war which effort. is really good yeah because i you know and i really enjoyed we do get a small scene of it um where he's taking a uh, I think a white British journalist through one of the refugee camps. And an American one as well, the redhead. Yeah, but they're, they're real awful. But in the movie, there's just the one guy. Yeah. And he's just talking about how easy the women are and how it's weird that they're eating rats because there's food out there and just can't get in. And it's like, who are you telling this to? Yeah, like one of the cruelest things that Nigeria... Um, one of the things that's considered the most cruel that Nigeria did during the war was cut off the relief supplies to civilians mm. because Kwashi Corps um killed millions of children like i think the casualty um was between one and three million but it's hard to know because they didn't keep records at the camps Mm. in the book um madu 
talks about how the casualties were a million and he like I'm not sure if that is correct or because he comments on how it seems too little yeah um, and I think that's lending to the fact that we just don't know how many were killed yeah. um, because there aren't um, significant records. But the, the thing is, is that most of the people who were killed weren't necessarily soldiers. They were civilians. Yeah, absolutely. Um, um, and it was done through famine and starvation, which is gross. It's uh, not like they're gross, but like it's a gross <sighs> tactic. Yeah, it's um, so such a violent thing to do to civilians. If you are a visual like person like me, if you are reading the book and you want to imagine how it's set out, so basically um, Biafra is at the southern part of Nigeria on the which she has a border with Cameroon and also so basically the film starts in the most northern areas and then basically as the Nigerian troops invade more and more land it just gets more and more southern, if that's how you want to imagine it, because there is a lot of location changes and for me I just find that I don't know easier to visualize but I've got I looked up a map as well and it's quite handy yeah um I I definitely think having a map is really useful there's so much that is written into the book that uh Chimamanda does well there are so many parallels and so many mirrors like one of the things that sticks out to me is the conversation they have near the beginning of the book Odeni Bo and his friends about the uh genocide for World War II and um they're talking about it kind of casually Mm. uh and then which is interesting because later the genocide is real and they're talking about who wouldn't wouldn't be part of it and then they're on either sides of it because some of his friends at that party are Yoruba and Hausa. Um, so I just, I find so much of it is so well done. Mm. Uh, and when we, so I started listening to this as the abridged audiobook. I didn't realize the audiobook was abridged. And then I was like, oh, it's abridged. And I knew that because I knew, I, I knew that Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie was like considered one of the greatest novelists um and i was like i'm not really connecting with this book and i couldn't understand why and then i realized it's because it was a bridge and i what started kind of things were they chopping at the best parts <laughs> um the the a lot of um the relationships and sexuality that um we see from Uhu. um abridged versions of books seem so bizarre to me because they are it's just like you're deciding that your vision of the book is better than the author's like how rude i think it's to make it more accessible because this is a quite a long book but once you put it long because it it needs to be long it moves you know yeah i agree i don't think there's anything worth cutting out no not at all i and i would say because there are books that are too long absolutely what aragon climaxes and then has a hundred pages left what did we read that could have been a third the length it was something recently. It wasn't Aragon, but we talked about how it didn't need a third of the book. It doesn't matter. But was it Artemis Fowl or maybe The Dragon Rider or... Maybe. It doesn't matter because yeah. our point is that this this is a long book, but it didn't need anything cut from it. No, it's what, beautiful. What I really missed as well um, is Uvu's story later when he gets conscripted and we get to see a really interesting change in him Mm -hmm. um and a lot of the um 
outcomes that come with like the brutality and war and how it changes you and there's a point where um he feels like he's become one like more of part of the team of soldiers and he talks about how he could run away if he wanted to but he didn't want to like Mm. he he want a part of him wanted to be there to fight like whether that's because he felt like he um was earning honor or fighting for something he really believed in like it doesn't explicitly say but i thought that that was so fucking interesting that she did that because initially he's so scared and he's like avoiding going outside of the house to be conscripted but then he he just really gets into it and i'm not sure if it's like a brainwashing thing or like you know i think it's a little bit of probably both like there's propaganda definitely but i think that um it's nice to feel like your life is part of something bigger yeah. Then you. Yeah. And um and and he then wins, you know, the praise and the respect of a lot of his um what is it? A troop. Yeah. Uh because he's very literate um and also, He's also very good. He's also very smart and he um you know, lets off a landmine at a really opportune time to kill as many opposing soldiers as possible. And so a lot of the, you know, soldiers respect him and that's not really an environment that he's been in before because he's used to being the houseboy rather than an equal. Yeah. We don't get to see his evolution because he he seems stronger at the end than Odenibo. Mm. Um, but he's so in awe of Odenibo at the beginning. Yeah. And um, the other thing that I really like from that, that chunk of narrative is... Um, the book is called Half of Yellow Sun, and the Half of Yellow Sun is the symbol that's on the army uniforms. It's the symbol that's on the flag. It's the symbol of Biafra. Um, and you can look that up and see it on images from, from the war real images. And, um, you know, Ugu is fascinated, and he is in awe of the army uniforms. That he thinks they all look so great. And then when he finally gets conscripted into the army, they don't have uniforms. Mm. And um, in the book, it's, like, described as... Um, you know, they, they don't have access to uniforms and they're all kind of naked. They don't have boots. They steal the boots of the dead soldiers they kill. Um, and then in the analysis that I read, it was like, you know, this is the symbolic loss of the hopefulness of the future because the sun represents the future successful Biafran country. Mm. Um, but it's not really the symbolic loss. Like, it, I, it, it comes to take on, take on that symbolic meaning in the, in the, the narrative, but... That really happened. They really ran out of, out of money for, for um, uniforms. Mm. Well, they were, and I just think that's really interesting the way that it's, some of this will have taken on symbolic meaning, but it's 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 not symbolism. It just was. Yeah, it's really interesting because um, depending on how much is historically accurate, they were never going. Biafra was never going to win the war. Well, it depended, right? And they couldn't have known that if other countries had recognized exactly the independence of Biafra and then provided them with weapons in the way that Britain and Russia did for Nigeria, Nigeria, they might have won. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Hmm. Because it's it's a really interesting thing. Like I can't help but draw some compa- comparisons to um, the Jewish community and the. Igbo, Igbo community? Igbo. I think e- the G is silent. Yeah. Like in uh, Odinibo. Yeah. Um, because 
the other communities get really angry at the success of those like the Ebo seem to someone talks about they own all the banks and they have all the businesses and they are financially very successful and um, people in the Jewish community there's like the stereotype of them being good with numbers and all this kind of thing and then it seems to be when and when a community group gets to be too successful someone wants to tear them down or destroy them or blame them for all the other problems that a country may be having. But the thing is, is that that sentiment didn't exist until white countries, Great Britain, put that sentiment and that narrative in there. They they've manufactured that because um, if they were fighting each other, they were easier to control because they weren't fighting back. They couldn't unite. Mm. Um against Great Britain. Yeah. Um, so they manufactured that sentiment because before um, Africa has ex- existed for as long as Great Britain has existed. Of course. But that, for, for, so for thousands of years, those tribes got along relatively well. That doesn't mean that there weren't, weren't skirmishes and there weren't fights and then whatever, but like there wasn't that sense of racial, ethnic tension until after white people moved in and said, you are ethnically different. Is that what's also happened in the Middle East? I don't know. I don't know enough about it. But um, there are parallels drawn between what's happening in this book and then what was happening in Vietnam as well Mm. um, by using Edna Whaler. um, is the um, American friend that Alana adopts for a wee while. Right. I just find war overall such a bizarre concept and that's that's absolutely my privilege because living in Aotearoa like um likely what 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 would impact me the most in my life will be prejudice for being um non-binary as well as being you know someone who has a vagina but you know climate change is what I fear I don't fear New Zealand going to war with another country we're quite a pacifist country if someone was to go to war with us we'd be fucked because we don't really have as many resources but it's definitely my white privilege that it's like I I just don't know why I didn't know about this already you know especially when Nigeria used to be part of the British colonies um well we would never have gotten this perspective more than likely from a white country because white countries still mm. water down their history. This book should be taught in every high school. I'm working on it. <laughs> I know you are. I, I just, I'm never surprised, but I'm continuously reminded about the specific narratives that are told to specific groups of people to get them to do specific things. And it's like, we're not living in the matrix, but we don't need to be because we are all being manipulated so subtly that it's like, you know, and even after reading this book, like, yeah, I'm going to tell other people about it, but what am I going to do at the end of the day, you know? Well, I mean, I don't, this isn't our... No, you're, no, and it's not about, you're right, it's not about me at all. Um, I'm glad that I... I read it, um, even the gang rape scene, because my mind will always imagine a worse scene. But I tried to protect you. I know you did. But I really enjoyed 
how the um, bar maid responded. Like she wasn't, she was angry. And I love that. I love that she was angry um, about it. And she seemed almost detached from it. Because I'm sure the war had impacted her already greatly as well. And she'd experienced great loss. Hmm. I'm just so fucking ignorant. You know? Well, I... And I think I knew that we both were. You know? Mm. And I think that's why I said we should commit to 50% of this season being from people of color. Mm. Um, And I'm so happy that we have like it's it's our privilege to not know <laughs> about these situations yeah um i think the reason that i chose to read a chapter from um from richard's perspective yeah uh, is because we are richard in a way totally you know, like right now, we're telling this story. It's not really our story to tell. Not at all. Um, and but I, th- I, I mean, we're not trying to tell this story. We're telling we're people to read the story. <laughs> yeah, I, that other people will pick up this book. Yeah, I, I think about that a lot, especially talking about um, different groups of people that aren't us. I think you know, who are we to talk about? You know, covering um, a thug like the hate you give. Um, you know, and while you are American, you are a white American. But that's that's how I see our podcast is that um, as white people, we can use our privilege to expose ourselves to stories that are different from our own hmm. and get other people to experience them and read them. And that's something that uh, Chimamanda talks about, like the um, dangers of a single story. Yeah, if you have not seen Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie's TED Talk, The yeah. Danger of a Single Story... We highly recommend it. <laughs> it's amazing. I've seen it like four times, and yeah. every time I can talk about it, I will. It's so good. It's really interesting because I saw. Did I send that to you? I'm not sure, but I I remember thinking that you had been talking to me about something similar when I saw it, and mm. like I think the internet had been listening to us, and that's why it popped up for me. Yeah. Um. But I loved it, and I. I think it's so true and I think that that's that's the danger and that's why the world has become so skewed in regards to power is because there are some people who are like the more extreme versions of Richard who come to the refugee camp and they can't imagine eating a rat and they're eating a chocolate bar while taking photos of these children who are going to die before their fifth birthday and they're so detached from it you know because they can't ever imagine being in that circumstance and they're just these white straight cis men coming from wealthy western countries Mm. and everything to them is theoretical everything like they talk about you know men there are the women who get so frustrated with men who want to talk about all these um theoretical situations about violence and rape and stuff and they're like the woman is like, this is real life. It's not theory for us. It makes me think of um, the in tracks when the Aborigine guy like plays to the white the tourists tourists and then gets the money and money 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 them. yeah yeah fuck that's funny it's so funny I love that I really enjoyed that we got some uh, Aboriginal perspectives in Whale Rider as well like I really appreciated that. Yeah, well, right we've read some good books this season. I really appreci- appreciate the mahi that you put into um, 
finding those different narratives because it was, you know, Brianna, um, as I described to other people, she is like the push element of the podcast and I'm the pull element. And to me, that's Brie um, finding our narratives and the literature and, you know, creating our um, Excel spreadsheet telling us when we get have to get things out by. And then I do the end stuff, editing and posting it and the marketing and that's why we make a good team. But I'm, I'm really grateful, you know, because I, I would be different if we had, didn't have this podcast because it is forcing me to read things that I wouldn't have read otherwise. Yeah. I think it's so important that this story and this author is featured in this season because Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie's TED Talk, The Danger of a Single Story, is exactly what we're trying to curb with ourselves and with this podcast where the only story that we tell or that we talk about is that of cis white people essentially mm. I'm, I'm going to include cis white women because cis white women are also very privileged mm. um and i i i i don't think it's surprising that some of the beast books that we've read this season have been by people of color no not at all um and this season has been very different from our first season of fantasy yeah which was very like I find that really funny because I would say 80 to 90 percent of those books were male authors mm. white male authors but I've loved this season so much I love this book and um I really enjoy how the energy and the vibe and the purpose of our podcast has changed as we've kind of learnt like why are we doing it what are we trying to like what's what story are we trying to tell you know yeah. like before you write a play or a film like what is the point like what are you trying to tell people and I think genuinely, if our listenership never grows more than what it is now, I am so happy to have started this podcast because of all of the books that we've got to read. Definitely. Um, by all these different wonderful authors. Yeah, and the conversations that we've had. And I keep recommending the books all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah. I'm so sad the film wasn't beta. I really it hope it gets made into um, a, a, a miniseries. Like a really it could never be anything else. Like, I, when we started the film, I had low expectations. Because we'd already talked about how you can't... How would you make this book into a single film? Yeah. You how can't. disappointing was the ending, though? The black screen with the white text, like, telling everybody's current location. I was just like, really? That's, that's how you're going to end this film? Yeah, it was real weak. Cool. <laughs> yeah, I, um... We don't even get any of the atrocities that are committed after the war, like when Odenibo uh, and um, Alana are stopped on the road to back to Unzuka and their house, um, and they're treated so poorly. Mm. Um, and then... We don't get any of that time period... Because they're back at the house and it's all mouldy and disgusting, and I wanted, the, the, I wanted them to go back there, filled with shit. Yeah, I wanted them to go back there. Yeah, and I see to the see damage, it. and I wanted Richard to come in and out while he was looking for Kainene, uh, Kainene, Kainene, and I wanted to see that time have passed and Alana get more and more distraught with her grief about not finding her sister, and yeah, I feel like. It could have been done uh, definitely a lot better. 
Like, but so when you finished the book, you didn't like the ending because you were like, "I want Kainane to come back." But Kainane kind of represents the Biafran sentiment mm. um, because there is still tension between Ibo Hausa and Yoruba because atrocities were committed on both sides, um, and that's important to understand. Um, that doesn't negate how horrible the Ibo pogrom was, um, but like th- there are. There's, you know, there's negative sentiments on both sides in terms of how the war is remembered. Definitely. And, um, but like there are, you know, for a lot of Igbo, Biafra still exists as this unreachable dream. And sure. that's why Kainane is missing because, um, and, and we get that juxtaposed because Eberechi, we find out that Eberechi has died during the war and... Richard opts not to tell Ugu so that it can remain a dream for a him. dream for him. Definitely. I think for me it's definitely just my feminism coming out and I'm like, why do we have to lose someone who has suffered so much and she has hurt no one? Hmm. Like why can't we lose um Odenibo? Because he doesn't represent I know. The I know. <laughs> I'm just like annoyed about it. Yeah. But not because it wouldn't help the narrative. I think the narrative is Beautifully written, and I absolutely agree but with But Kainene is the only character who is ever not blinded by, like, Biafra. I know. And Ojukwu. I understand. I'm uh, still annoyed about it. Okay. But not, not logically. Yeah. Just emotionally. She represents the Biafra that could have been the best parts of it. Yes. I don't think I have the energy. I don't think I have anything else to say. <laughs> um, yeah, no. Please, 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 please read this book. It's so worth it. Yeah, definitely do it um, when you're in a stable state of mind, though, is what I would yeah. say. Like, I recently studied antidepressants, and they have been very positive for me. And I know reading this book, when I wasn't on them, it was emotionally too draining. Um, But then I read the last um, few hundred pages over a couple of days because I had the emotional capacity for it. So it is really heavy. Take care of yourself. Put your own oxygen mask on first before helping others. But absolutely something that should be on your um, bucket list, book list to read in your life. I was just thinking about like how many great books we have read this season and I just wanted to like walk down memory lane because the image of the girl's head in the calabash that's one of the central images from this book um is uh it reminds me so much of the imagery that we get in the joy luck club Mm. um it's quite dark but beautiful Mm. and that just made me think like we've read the joy luck club the hate you give um Tracks, Crazy Rich Asians, uh, Disobedience, Carol, The Color Purple, uh, Hidden Figures, and um, in this book. And what a season we've had. Yeah, you didn't list the Patience Stone in there. Oh yeah, and the Patience Stone, <laughs> which was beautiful. And also, now we're starting on In the Time of Butterflies, which is proving to be just as beautiful and just as heart-wrenching as this one is. Yeah. Um, and like, jeez. Something that I find pretty funny in like a more a lot not a morbid but just like it's funny because it's sad but true like a lot of the literature 
that I've experienced when it's written by a woman, it's so much more either sad or aggressive or powerful than like a lot of the fantastical stuff that men make up. Like, and women are seen to be these soft, weak beings, and like you know, especially in regards to sexism and that kind of thing. But women literally hold the world together. Uh, yes, I agree that women hold the world together. I don't agree that men haven't written things as moving or as powerful. I think we identify with female narratives more because we have both been raised as female. But I think, like, Night by Ellie Wiesel absolutely tore me apart. Um, yeah. It, it's and I, you one know. of the books that made me want to study literature. Uh, the Crucible by Arthur Miller also made yeah. me want to study literature. Oh, I'm not saying for all. Like I, all Quiet on the Western Front. I, yeah, I get your of point. Of Mice Annie. and Men. I'm not saying. So good. I love my big generalizations. You know that. Yes, I do. But I, and know. I love tearing them apart for you. <laughs> but you know you know that I don't. You know, I'm, I'm just saying that I love Philip Pullman. Yeah, I'm going to even mention Philip Pullman. Philip but, Pullman! But it, I, I always think... He made it into our wedding vows! Sorry. What I always think about is something that Deborah Francis White said, how while Monty Python gave some great things to the world, what stories were we not hearing because of the space that they were taking up? Absolutely. And I think that we have lost so many great female voices and voices of people of color and voices of the LGBTQIA plus community, but I don't think that negates the greatness of the male literature that we've read. I think that some of it can quietly be retired um, or adapted or alluded to by more progressive works, um, as we've seen with Ralph McCubbin Howell's Lysander's Auntie. Um, and other great retellings, but I think um, I think that it's not fair to say that women's voices are always more powerful because um, you know I think I think great writers tell great stories, and it doesn't really matter what their sex is. Mm. Mm. But I think what this season has shown is that. Um, for every great male writer, there is a great female writer or a great LGBTQI plus writer or a great um, writer of color uh, to um, be their counterpart. Like, talent comes from everywhere. Well, definitely, but also straight white cis men are a minority group in numbers. Absolutely. But they're the dominant story in media and film. Yep. Um, and hopefully... We can change that. (laughs) (laughs) One podcast at a time. Yeah, we're the ones, not, like, the writers. I was joking, Jim Mondegozi Adichie is definitely doing more for changing this than we are. Obviously. And Amy Tan and all the other great authors that we've got to read. Julia Alvarez is great. Roxanne Gay, beautiful, stunning, love her. (laughs) Yeah, no. Roxanne Gay, I love you. If you ever want to talk, I'm here. <laughs> Please. Also, come back to New Zealand when you can. That was cancelled, that tour, wasn't I it? I know. Yeah. What day? So, is next um, episode our last? Of this, this season. season. 
Which is in the time of butterflies. By Julia Alvarez. Simply because it took us so long to be able to find a copy of that book. We were going to originally end on Half a Yellow Sun, but I finally found a copy of In the Time of Butterflies in my university library and decided to keep it in this season. So Yeah. Cool. Okay. Are you good? Are we going to do Remake, Remake, Retire? Because we forgot the the last season. For the the last episode. Last episode. For the film. Yeah. Uh... Yep. The last episode was Whale Rider. Whale Rider. Also stunning. Mm. And Cousins! Oh, the books we've read this year. Yeah, Patricia Grace. We're actually seeing her speak as part of the Christchurch Word Festival Committee. Um, We forgot to do revamp, remake, retire uh, as part of the last episode. I think we should do a double one. So one for Whale Rider. Mm. Um, I've got it. I know what I want. For Rare I don't know. What are they again? Remake is... Remake the same film? Updated? No, revamp is... is... Okay, 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 okay. Remake is like start over, back to the drawing board, new script. Okay. One, two, two three. three. Remake. remake. Yeah. Yeah, hot out. I agree. Wanna see the story of the whales be included in the narrative? Yeah, we talked about that. Yeah. We, talk, we did talk about what we wanted to see, so I feel like we kind of implied we wanted a remake. Yeah, but I just want to, like, settle that. Great, so let's settle it for Half of a Yellow Sun. I know that's a bit harder. Okay. One, two, two, three. three. Retire. Mm, I was torn between remake or retire. I'm doing retire on technicality because a remake implies another film and I want to see a miniseries. Yeah, cool. I'm on the same page with that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Like a really good one. Like, I want the makers of The Handmaid's Tale... God, that's dark. Not like the makers of it, because it should be people of color who are familiar with. Yeah, but just like their production, like value. Nigeria and yeah. Biafran history. Yeah. But, I get you. Um, but yeah, yeah. Well, um, you know, Margaret Atwood hasn't um, created any circumstances that haven't happened in history before. Yeah, that's true. Because the world's a dark, dark place. So it'd be nice to everyone. Cool. Okay, I think we'll end the episode there. Um, is that all right, Brianna? Uh, it is all right. I would definitely cast um, Lupita Nyong'o and um, Amanda Stenberg in a remake of this. Just saying. Was she in it? Twelve Years a Slave. Yeah. Yeah. And also um, Black Panther. Black Panther. Black Panther. <laughs> Get a whisper. Uh, um, excellent. Cool. Yes. So we will be covering In the Time of Butterflies by Julie Alvarez about the Dominican Republic. It's also a historical fiction novel. So if you want more of the same, that's what we're doing. Yep. Um, this is season two. Um, female-led literature and film. Um, chapter one, take two is a podcast. And we love doing it. We have an email address, we have Facebook, we have Instagram, we have Twitter. If you want to chat, if you want to... And please chat with us. We love talking about books. If you've read the books or watched the movie and you have an opinion, we want to hear it. Yeah, if you like the film for some reason. If you disagree with us, we'll tell you why you're wrong. (laughs) This is not a podcast for healthy debate. (laughs) I'm just kidding. kidding. (laughs) Um, Um, Chapter 1, take 2 at adler.com. And we also have a Patreon. We do. 
um, if you'd like to contribute to that. We'll keep making episodes either way because it's really a good way. Bree and I are both um, results and goals oriented people, so having the target of reading a book every two weeks has been it's been hard sometimes. Um, you know, sometimes you will have noticed it's been a three weeks gap between episodes, but once. Yes, but I'm, a sl- I'm well. It's not that I'm a slow reader. It's just when I'm in the mood, I can read like a speed demon. But when I'm, I'm, I'm a um, what is it? What's the phrase? I am subject to my whims. I am, you know, there's a phrase. I'm sure there is, but I can't think of it. And you staring at me is not going to make it pop into my head. You know, it doesn't matter. I just am who I am. You are who you are. Yeah. And everyone is. And yeah. Okay. Thank you so much. Everyone is. And yeah. Okay. I hope that. You're taking care of yourself. We're still living in a COVID-19 world and that's affecting us still, you know. Um, not in regards so much to our day-to-day lives, but in regards to seeing family and friends overseas who we haven't seen in a really long time. So, you know, it's it's important to self-care, whatever that means for you. It absolutely is. I think this episode has been really sad. Um, and so I just want to remind you that chickens are fun to look at. And also, if you pick them up and, you know, sway them a little bit, their heads stay in the same place, and that's real funny. Yeah. And, like, it's really healthy to just watch some cute videos of puppies and dogs sometimes. Absolutely. Puppies and dogs? Puppies and kittens, oh my goodness. Well, puppies and dogs. Yeah, but I meant puppies and kittens. Like, tickling a big, fat puppy and watching it laugh is just so fucking good. Yeah. Yeah, cool. Okay. I'm Maddie, and you are? Brianna. So nice to have you here. Thank you. So nice to have you here. Thank you for being in my home. Thank you for being in my home. You're so welcome. Great. So glad we're on home together. It's, well, I like it. Yeah. Yeah, great. Okay, we'll um, talk to you again in a couple of weeks. Yes, we will. Kakite. Bye. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Yeah.